0: hey guys today we're going to continue our discussion of chapter six of objectivism the philosophy of ayn rand with the topic reason is man's basic means of survival stay tuned all right so let's start out with a summary of this section we begin with the observation that for every living organism it has a means of survival And that for any conscious living organism, consciousness is its basic means of survival. And for the lower animals, they survive on the perceptual level, but that's precisely what humans can't do. Whereas animals can just kind of collect what they need in order to survive from the environment around them and adapting themselves or conforming to the environment around them. Human beings have to transform it. We have to produce the things that we need in order to survive, but production takes thinking and more broadly all of our survival needs require us to engage in process of thought and as we've seen since reason is our only means of knowledge reason ultimately is our basic means of survival. Now Leonard goes on to contrast this view of reason as our basic means of survival with the kind of platonic view that treats reason as essentially a means of contemplation and from objectivism's perspective reason is a practical faculty and so here we get the most extensive discussion or most in-depth discussion of objectivism's rejection of the mind-body dichotomy and embrace of mind-body integration that is reason is a practical faculty it's what allows us to understand the world and form long range goals and plans and govern ourselves accordingly and so we end then with a discussion of the actual practical impact on human life that reason has had in the last 200 years, namely thanks to the Industrial Revolution, people have gone from living below 8, uh, below 30 to 80, and that we've gone from 80% of us uh, on farms in order to eke out survival to a handful of people able to create a better fed civilization than at any time in history. So the first point that I wanna make about this section is to really emphasize how crucial it is. This is really the central principle of objectivism because everything so far has led up to it and everything that follows hinges on it. We've said that about this chapter in general, but in particular, this section, this principle of reason as man's means of survival is in many ways the most important principle in objectivism. And one way to think about it is that we've said a number of time in these videos that from objectivism's perspective, all normative guidance, all guidance on what you should do requires a goal and then a recognition of a metaphysically given fact. And so it's recognizing that fact in light of a goal leads to a certain course of action that one should follow. And essentially all of the objectivist ethics, politics, and even in many ways, the aesthetics, it comes from the fundamental goal, as we'll get to in the next chapter of to live and then the recognition of the metaphysically given fact that reason is man's basic means of survival. And I think the most eloquent example of this is that if you look at uh, and again we'll talk about this more when we get to the next chapter but as we'll see Ayn Rand says that you know the purpose of morality is your life and happiness but that the standard of morality the standard of value is man's life or she, sometimes put it as man survival qua man and what that means is the requirements of the survival of a being whose basic means of survival is reason that it's focused on what is required for the survival of a rational animal and so this is if you get this principle then It'll clarify everything in objectivism, and if you don't, and I mean really get it, like really see it firsthand, and then see how it's carried through in the rest of the philosophy. Um, if you don't, then you'll have a lot of struggles and a lot of trouble. And one of the one of the things that we should keep tabs on as we go along is the way in which arguments that can seem unconvincing or even rationalistic are the the w- reason that that happens. I think is often because people don't really see fully and with full first-hand clarity the validity of this principle that reason is our basic means of survival. So let's sketch that out a little bit more. So I want to talk a little bit about Ayn Rand's view of reason, and in particular what I think is uh, going on in this section, which is really an integration of reason, which we've talked about with what we covered in the previous section, life as goal-directed and conditional and so in the last section we had at a high level for all living organisms including man the fact that everything in our constitution is structured such that it's directed towards the maintenance and support and furtherance of our life and the point here is that reason is like this too and in fact reason is the fundamental thing that is going to determine whether or not we can survive but it's that in effect if you think of there's a real function for your liver right the liver is not just for like contemplating its own liverness it's a biological organ that's designed for the kind of maintenance of your body and the point is that reason as a faculty is as well that it's not for sheer contemplation of facts but for guiding you through life it is a as To say that uh, it's a practical faculty is to say that it has a biological function of governing you through existence in ways that help you survive. And more specifically, that it's, that it's a, a faculty that's to direct productiveness, the creation of the material resources that you need to survive. And so what I'm stressing here is that from objectivism's perspective, to be rational is to guide your life by reason it is to produce using your mind the things required for survival it is to formulate long-range goals by reason and govern yourself accordingly and direct your life accordingly and the reason why i'm really trying to highlight this is that it's something that i myself don't think i fully had and in many ways Um, even leading up to this working on this video I realized that I think I had a certain fact value dichotomy like I got the idea that from objectivism's perspective you need to be rational and that this entails being productive and formulating your purposes through reason but I saw that as in effect kind of an add-on like all right first we get that reason achieves knowledge and that that stood in my mind I think more is just awareness of reality as it is and then it's, okay, then we prove a, mora- a moral uh, code, a moral standard. And only then do we discover that, like, okay, now to be rational, given a moral code entails um, setting purposes and being productive. And what was striking is that from th- that what you get in this section is the way in which, no, this is already in Ayn Rand's view of even what reason is. Now, this doesn't tell us yet that we should be productive, or that even that we should be rational, or that we should seek to survive, but just as a factual matter, what is reason? Reason is, being rational is, living by reason is, using it to understand the world, but also project purposes, and uh, in particular, to produce, to create. That is what the faculty of reason is and that is its function biologically in human beings. And this is just a really transformative perspective that one can have on reason. And it's, I mean, I think self-evidently, you know, we've contrasted it from the Platonic view, but I think it's vastly different than the way that we're taught to think about reason, which is precisely, I think, through the lens of a fact-value dichotomy where it's, all right, well, you know, reason, I mean, this is the whole argument that we're going to go into when we turn to ethics, the kind of Humean perspective, that reason is fine for uh, naming facts, but not values. And that the two realms are completely separate. It's that that's treating reason as the competitive faculty rather than a biological faculty. And so if you'll remember in the last video, I mentioned the way in which other philosophers don't take seriously the fact that man is a living organism and part of what it means that aynron really does take that seriously is that that's her view of reason um that that reason is eminently tied to us as living creatures trying to sustain ourselves and that you can't start with well reason is for kind of these higher ethereal realm of searching for truth as an end in itself and then You know, somehow we reason argues itself into oh, I guess I have to now uh, use my mind in order to survive. It's much more intimately connected with that. So I I think that is, to me at least, that was a very striking thing when I read this section was how much is embedded even before we get to a discussion of ethics proper. Let's say something about the validation of Reason as Man's Basic Means of Survival. And basically what I want to do is kind of cover some of the material in a course that I've recommended before, but want to recommend again or re-recommend Leonard Peikoff's Objectivism Through Induction. Again, available for free on YouTube. It's on the Ayn Rand Institute app and campus uh, site. And it's, I mean, a really revolutionary course, but on this particular induction Leonard Peikoff goes through, there's three steps that are going to be involved in order to reaching this conclusion. And it's, you can start out with the fact that there's certain things that human beings need in order to live, in order to survive, that there's a certain kind of process or set of actions that are required in order to achieve these things, that there's some kind of thought process necessary as part of that action as part of those actions and so the basic idea is that reason gets us the things we need in order to survive and therefore reason is our means of survival and a quick aside on this idea of reason as our means of survival notice that the word basic isn't in there one of the points that leonard Peikoff makes in that course is that whenever you're inducing you're first inducing something there's Kind of precision and refinements that are not part of the initial induction and that you wouldn't include and so in this case it's basic Um, uh, elsewhere he's talked about why is that word basic in there and it goes to the point that he starts off the section in opar with which is that everything about an organism is part of its means of survival that you know we mentioned your liver but you know your heart your blood circulation every uh, your legs these are our all parts of your means of survival. But the point is that for a human being, none of that is really relevant if he's not using his mind to direct his life. And so it's from that perspective that we say this is your basic means of survival. This is the thing you have control over that's going to fundamentally determine whether or not you live or not. So let's just take a kind of brief dip into each element of this induction and get a sense of the kind of inductive evidence that one would be looking at so if we have the first part as we have certain survival needs we need certain things in order to live the question is well okay what kind of inductive evidence would lead you to that conclusion and the kind of first three things that should jump to your mind he says and I wish I could remember exactly. He says, you know, if you if you're come up with um, something like, you know, art and self-esteem, you're th- that's hopeless. Um, th- or freedom and self-esteem are the examples he gives. That Like that's, you're, you're starting with knowledge that you can only get from philosophy long after you grasp that reason is man's basic means of survival. That unless you grasp that reason is your means of survival, you're never gonna get to the conclusion that man needs self-esteem or that he needs freedom. And so the kind of starting place is the common sense, you know, trinity, right? Food, clothing, and shelter. One of the points Leonard makes methodologically is that when you're thinking about inducing, you're not trying to like induce in some weird sort of vacuum. You think about a person who's living in an advanced and uh, a division of labor economy, you know, that they're not five, Um, it's helpful to think about, you know, a younger age, but I find it helpful more to think about where would I have been, you know, around the age of like, 20. Whereas if you get like a mental picture of like an eight year old, you're not going to get anywhere. um, Because these are these are much more sophisticated. But if you think about somebody in college, and they're starting to reflect philosophically, on the world, I think that's kind of a good target where you get what kinds of things would you actually be looking at that would lead you to this so we have food clothing and shelters kind of some of the basic things that we need in order to survive but then it's much wider than that and so you would think about things like tools weapons um, i don't think this is an example leonard gives but energy is a really big one certainly it's big given work that i've done and um medicine of course so there's a whole range of things and you know you could concretize these even further you know assuming that like uh tools is a floating abstraction you know go down to the local hardware store and you can just look and see wrenches and drills and hammers and nails okay um you know if energy is a floating abstraction which is probably more likely it's you know read some books on that and it's okay now i get the idea of oil and coal and natural gas and nuclear and um hydro and you know well wind and solar kind of pseudo energies but you get the point of there's uh and you can even think about more specifically like oh this is how an internal combustion engine works and this is how a turbine works and so on and and then you can even think about things like animal energy and uh more primitive forms of kind of windmills that are just used to like grind grain and things like that so you can have for all of these they should be rich in observations and a flood of concrete should come to mind but then we get to okay there's certain processes in order to get them and um, one of the methodological points here that Leonard Peacock brings out is that you want to be thinking in contrast so in order to really get and and be able to focus on the distinctively human way of achieving the things we need to survive you would be thinking about is there a species that doesn't have our kind of abundant way of life with houses and cars and um restaurants and life-saving drugs and yet is able to survive and then it's okay those are the you know lower animals and even you know the um the the plants and so on and it's that you would part of what you would get is that okay every living organism has a means of survival and then you would start dividing that up and think okay for plants it's that they use unconscious chemical means in order to survive and then it's for lower animals that what they're really doing is they're using locomotion directed by consciousness but that when it comes to human beings then you would think all right what's the difference between what they do with their consciousness and what we do and so it's um, you could think about like well with food animals basically run over and whatever's available they grab or they fight with each other over food right or they you know try to chase down and kill some other animal and maybe compete with other animals for their meal and that what what do we do well it's we sow, till irrigate in order to grow food right Uh, or you can think about clothing the, the very fact that we have it and it's that we capture animals and we tan and we skin and we go through this process and i think leonard has a a line for home, where he just says, you know, read the Fountainhead. But you can get that there's processes behind all of these things that enable us to get what we need in order to survive. There's a kind of activity that's very distinct from what other creatures are doing. And so then now we have to get, okay, is there something common to these activities? And I won't go through the whole thing, but you would just think that, here's where you would get, oh, there's, there's a reasoning process behind it. And I mean, just to take, you know, the obvious example, you'd have to generalize, you have to grasp the connection between planting a seed and something growing and be able to generalize and have as a generalization, oh, these seeds under these conditions planted lead to food. And there's just a whole, um, wide net you would cast intellectually about the, different things that you would ha- that you would have to do in order to enact the processes that lead to what we need to survive and they all involve things like generalization language science things associated with even kind of a primitive understanding of reason one of the, uh, one of the things that Leonard Peacock really stresses is you can't start with the objectivist conception of reason often he'll begin and I think in this case he does with a dictionary definition of This is what it means uh, to be reason, uh, to follow reason. And it's kind of very common sense things like language, like science, like generalizing. And that the, the kind of summary conclusion you would get then is, okay, we have a certain kind of mental faculty and with distinctive features unique to humans that are connected to the process of production that creates the things that we need in order to survive and one thing then that we can reflect on is how much of this is actually in opar itself i mean leonard starts out with this contrast between the way in which other living organisms survive and the way man survives and in particular then it's we have to produce and then it's um, production is a process of reason which he can treat very briefly here because in opar we've gotten you know an entire chapter and really several chapters on what reason is and so the thing I want to highlight here is you know with with opar its primary goal is to give us the system of objectivism in the most kind of condensed retainable way possible and show all of its interconnections and interrelationships and yet, even given that that's the primary goal it's astonishing how inductive the book is and how much insight it will give you into okay what are the kind of inductive steps that one would have to go through in order to formulate this or reach it for the first time that it's it's both systematized um and yet not deductive and that is i think it's I mean, this is just a good moment to reflect on what an achievement this book is. I mean, it's easy when somebody's written something to look at it and go, "Yeah, well, that was, that was all. That's obviously the way you would write it and formulate it." And then be very critical um, of, "Yeah, well, I would have done it this way, or I would have done it better." But if you think about what's gone into something that's this kind of hierarchically organized, this precise, and yet still this uh inductive at least in its essence that is uh, to me a marvel and speaking as somebody who's I think a pretty decent writer with a pretty decent grasp of objectivism um, I really am in awe um, of this book because of I know how much must have gone into getting it the to be the book that it is one of the things that Leonard Peikoff has commented on quite a bit is Ayn Rand's insistence that she could not have formulated objectivism and in particular she couldn't have formulated this principle that reason is man's basic means of survival until after the industrial revolution and if you reflect on the kind of induction that we just went through you might think well it doesn't seem like you'd have to have the industrial revolution in order to go through that process and in a sense that's true like the material was there but what was missing and my view is that what was missing really comes down to the point that man survives in a fundamentally different way than animals and let's just expand on that for a minute so if you think about the kind of nature of how animals survive, it's kind of cyclical and repetitive, right? It's that, you know, the, the blue jays or the dogs or well, dogs are a little bit different, right? Because they're so intimately tied to us. But if you think of like blue jays and squirrels and things, um, or deer, that essentially they're just repeating the same cycles and that they're doing the same things that, they're, that were done by these animals, you know, a hundred or a thousand years ago for the most part. And that what, what leaps out at you after the Industrial Revolution is the completely different way in which human beings live. Where the way that we lived 100 years ago is completely different than the way we live today. And even within your, your lifetime, the way in which we survive, the particular things that we go after and to fulfill in order to fulfill our needs, change and change rapidly. But this was not true before the Industrial Revolution, that there had been progress, an important progress. I mean, the different the, the difference between being a hunter-gatherer and having civilization is huge. But there's a question of, you know, how, where were people of that tra- of the, that transformation, you know, three, four hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. And then what what was the real meaning of it? What could one take that to mean? Because it seems kind of glacially sh- slow, um, almost accidental, and it 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 did not seem to integrate very well with the fact of. Well, to survive, I do what my grandfather and great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather and great-great-great-great-great-grandfather did and till the field and, you know, uh, basically live on the farm in the same sort of way or exploit the masses the way that my great-grandfather, the king, exploited the masses. So you didn't have that perspective on human beings as living. You had them as different, right? as having language and and so on but seeing that in terms of a different way of surviving was not at all obvious and not at all apparent and you might think well all right what about the ancient greeks because they lived at a time of if not rapid technological development rapid explosion of knowledge and again that's true but the whole issue is getting that that is your means of survival and the point is that objectivism makes is that that the knowledge that they were discovering was not seen as practical. It was not seen as connected to survival, that the kinds of things people did to survive were the same basic arts that had always been around in more or less the same basic manner. And so you had to, it it takes a lot in order to grasp the concept and, and become aware of the, the, The whole issue that there's a different way that we survive and then what is it and that that would not have been obvious or even something that you could really realistically expect someone to see before the industrial revolution what you needed then was rapid progress and progress clearly driven by knowledge and not just by the sort of um practical reasoning that the Greeks would have been aware of, like, well, how do you build a saddle or something like that? Um, It's, I don't even know that they use saddles then, but you get it's how do you kind of uh, build this or grow this, but that it's the most abstract scientific knowledge being applied to the most practical issues in human life. And that's kind of the core of what you need from the industrial revolution. And one broader point, that I want to make about this is that if you want to understand Ayn Rand's perspective on life, I think you really have to see it in the context of her as somebody who takes the meaning of the Industrial Revolution seriously. Ankar Gaate give gave a really excellent talk on just this issue called um productive achievement, man's noblest activity. And he highlighted that if you think about the industrial revolution it's this transformative you've all seen uh these graphs that you know look like hockey sticks of in the last 200 years our standard of living by every possible metric has just soared and that from objectivism's perspective and this is the biggest improvement in human flourishing in human history and like it should be a major, major question of, all right, What is? what are the philosophic implications and the philosophic meaning of this phenomenon? Or just to put it more kind of um, practically speaking, how the hell did this happen? And How do we make sure that it continues? And that there was none of that that happened in philosophy. And yet Ayn Rand views this as really a central thing that one has to take seriously in order to formulate a philosophy and one of the points Ankar makes is that this shows up not just in the point that reason is man's basic means of survival but in many ways throughout objectivism and he highlights what i found uh, a really striking and trenchant observation that in the objectivist ethics so we're going to talk when we get to virtue about how uh from objectivism's perspective there's seven virtues and a kind of primary virtue of rationality of which the other six are derivatives. But when Ayn Rand presents the objectivist ethics, so that's in Galt's speech, but when Ayn Rand presents the objectivist ethics, she highlights three basic virtues and it's rationality, um, productiveness and pride. And she treats as aspects of rationality, honesty, integrity, independence. And Ankar makes the point of that, you know, he asked the question, why is she viewing, treating things that way in this essay? And, and one part of the answer is that they're most directly connected to the three major values that objectivism talks about, reason, purpose, and self-esteem. But that he also suggested that and argued for that th- these three virtues are unique in the way that they're focused on, if you want to put it as progress and ambition. So it's the progressive knowledge, progressive wealth, moral ambitiousness. That's what uh, rationality, productiveness, and pride are aimed at. And these are really taking seriously this idea of human beings as progressive creatures, progress or regress, progress or die is ayn rand's way of looking at things and so we see this kind of way of taking seriously at every aspect of philosophy the actual meaning of the industrial revolution for our last topic i want to integrate some of the threads we've been talking about by bringing in uh something else i learned from Ankar, and i don't remember if it was in the oac many years ago Um, or just a conversation that we had, but he stressed the way in which there were kind of three ideas that that went into getting, as a philosophic principle, that reason is man's basic means of survival. The first one we hinted at in the last video, but we should now make explicit, which is that you had to have a Darwinian perspective on life. That is, viewing life as a struggle for existence and then viewing human beings as living organisms which as we talked about was not the kind of standard way of viewing things like we take for granted a Darwinian perspective on life and just oh well that's self-evident um but it was not self-evident I mean maybe you know to biologists uh leading up to Darwin but the for most of human history that was not the way of looking at things but in order to get that life is goal directed and conditional and then combine that with a view of reason you had to have Darwin the second as we've talked about was the industrial revolution to get that human beings have a completely distinctive way of surviving and that it is that is surviving through production through production and that production is guided by knowledge including our most abstract most scientific knowledge And then there's a third element though, and this is why I highlighted to get this as a philosophic principle, which means to be able to integrate it into a system, you had to have uh, the mind-body integration view. And one way to put this is that, think about the, period after the industrial revolution and you can ask why was ayn rand the first philosopher to discover that well we get kind of an indication from leonard picoff where he says that you need to have a view of the mind-body integration which comes from the primacy of existence and an objective theory of concepts but if we if we think about it more in historic terms by the time the industrial revolution happens philosophies in a kantian era it's an era where since Descartes we've been in the primacy primacy of consciousness has been embedded in philosophy and then we have a real skepticism uh, about the relationships between concepts and percepts um, from Hume and then really embodied in Kant and you can think about it as a complete separation between man, man's mind and his actual life on earth and a skepticism that our minds can give us anything relevant to the life that we're living on earth and so if that's your view then you can't get the idea that reason is a practical faculty because it's precisely that reason is cut off from knowing this world and so you have to have In order to get reason as man's basic means of survival, that is a practical faculty for guiding your life through this world, you have to get it that it can know this world and understand this world. And that that is all cut off by the mind-body dichotomy. And, you know, if you just think about different variants, the theory practice, empiricism, rationalism, um, art versus entertainment, love versus sex, these are all ways in which, you know, reason is oriented to something higher than the world in which we live. And, and you can think cut off from the world in which we live, which is certainly the Kantian idea. And If that's what reason is, if it's not a practical tool that can give us knowledge of the world in which we live in order to govern us through it, then you couldn't integrate the idea of reason as man's means of survival with a philosophic system so you needed all three ingredients you needed darwin you needed the industrial revolution and then you needed a philosophic foundation of the primacy of existence and the objective theory of concepts the idea that concepts are organizations of percepts um the at minimum you needed this kind of aristotelian sort of perspective on abstraction as a as fully grounded in the world around us but ultimately a fully objective theory of concepts um that is laid out by Ayn Rand in order to get, no, this is a practical faculty to govern us through existence and help us in the struggle for survival and unleashing endless rapid progress that is going to culminate in this principle of reason as man's basic means of survival. So that's it for this video. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to like it, subscribe to the YouTube channel, subscribe on iTunes, subscribe everywhere. But of course, the best way to stay in contact, as always, is to go to donswriting.com and sign up for the newsletter. Talk next time.